0: Hello, my name is Kyle. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Annalise. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John 1, 1 through 3 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The gospel of the Lord. Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Spirit of the living God. Would you hover over us today? Would you hover over us as you hovered over the depths before creation? And would you bring life to our chaos? Spirit of the living God, would you breathe on us? Bring life to us as you brought life in the garden. Spirit of the living God, would you breathe your life into us as Jesus breathed on his disciples you fall on us as you did on the day of Pentecost. Would you light a flame of love in our hearts? Speak to us today and guide us in ways that are full of grace and truth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It is good to be back with you this morning. I was out last week preaching at New Life Midtown, our newest of our eight congregations uh, here in the Pikes Peak region. Their uh, senior pastors are out on sabbatical right now. So one of the benefits that we have of being a family of churches uh, is that we're able to serve one another during those kinds of times. So it was great being there with them. But I'm so excited to be back here with you guys. I missed you. We are here today, clearly, uh, and we will be here again next week. Next week, we're going to celebrate water baptisms. Uh, so if you or someone in your household has never been water baptized before, and you're like, I kind of think I want to do that. I'm ready to sort of publicly uh, express my faith in Christ and be a part of that longstanding Christian tradition. It's not too late uh, to register for that. So you can find one of us after the service. We do a little water baptism class during the first service at 9.30. Uh, and then we will uh, celebrate that sacrament during the 11 o'clock here. And then the following week, October 31st, uh, after nearly 20 months, uh, we will head back to Palmer High School. Uh, So squeaky chairs, here we come. I told, I told Sarah the other day as I was thinking about that first Sunday back in Palmer, I think when we do stand at communion and all the chairs squawk like a flock of seagulls, uh, I might cry uh, at, that, at that moment. It'll be the only time I cry at those chairs um, Enjoy The rest of the time we just kind of cry in pain uh, around uh, those chairs. But we'll be back. Uh, today, though, we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians. We'll be in Galatians this week and next week, uh, and then have a standalone sermon. Service, uh, for our first Sunday back in Palmer, and then we'll dive into the book of Ruth after that. But uh, we're walking through Galatians in a series that we're calling the Revolutionary Gospel because we're recognizing, it is, as Paul recognizes here, that the life and death and resurrection and ascension and inevitable return of Jesus actually changes everything. It is revolutionary, it turns the world, you could say, upside down, but really it turns the world right side up again a world that's been, un, that's been overturned by sin and death and evil and darkness, is being turned right side up again by the gospel of Jesus. And particularly in Galatians, we're seeing how the gospel works itself out in the life of the church, how the gospel works itself out in our life together, that the gospel actually unites Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, into a new kind of community that actually witnesses to the world what life will be like when Jesus is king. That's the, the, the goal or the purpose or the mission of the church, is to live our life together in such a way that people can begin to imagine just a glimpse of what life will be like When Jesus comes and makes everything right and new and beautiful and good and perfect again, that the church witnesses to that in some way. Last week, Pastor Glenn covered the first half of Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be picking up kind of in the middle of Galatians 5, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians 5.13, or you can follow along on the screens. Last week, Pastor Glenn was unpacking the idea of of really Paul's assertion that we have been set free— that one of the marks of us as the people of God is that we've been set free, but we've been set free for a particular purpose. We've been set free in order to love. We've been set free in order to actually give our lives in self-sacrificial service to others. And so we're going to pick that up. We're using the NIV today. If you're noticing, we kind of switched translations on you. Uh, It's because the NIV translates a particular word here the same way every single time. Uh, So it just works works better for kind of following what Paul's saying. But we're going to be looking at what does the gospel actually set us free from? And how is that freedom actualized in our lives? How is it that we actually experience the freedom of the gospel as the people of God? And so Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 starts this way. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you bite and devour each other, watch out, otherwise you're gonna be destroyed by one another. So I say to you, instead of doing that, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Paul here is talking about a conflict power struggle, if you will, between what he calls the flesh. And the Spirit. And he says, what what the flesh wants, what the flesh desires, what the flesh is for, actually stands in opposition to or against what the Spirit wants, what the Spirit desires, what the Spirit is for. And the Spirit that he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit that's taken up residence in every child of God. For those of us who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and have confessed with our mouth and believed on him for salvation, the Spirit has taken up residence inside of us. But the confusing thing here is, what does Paul mean when he talks about flesh? Like, what is that all about? It's kind of an odd word. Like, it's, we don't even use it outside of the church that much. Maybe at a butcher counter, but even then I think the butcher would look at you a little bit strange. Like, can I have a pound of chicken flesh? Like, we just don't use that word all that often. And inside the church, if we're honest, we kind of use it in strange ways. I remember when I first became a Christian, and like, talking to people, and it's like, hey, how's your day going? I'm just struggling with my flesh today, brother. I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? Is it your, it's like your thumb? Is that bothering you? Is it, is it a toe? Like, I had no clue what people were saying. Uh, in the original language of the Testament in Greek, it's used in a variety of ways. But we want to try to pinpoint Is What is Paul meaning here? What is he talking about in this particular passage? And there have been some people who think that whenever Paul is using this word, that he's talking about our physical bodies. That what Paul surely must be talking about when he talks about flesh is these things. Uh, and there's times that this Greek word does actually refer to our physical bodies, but in this passage, that would suggest then that there's something about our physical bodies that is bad. And we know according to the Christian story, our bodies are actually not bad. That's a Greek idea that gets smuggled into some Christian traditions, that in Greek thought everything that's material is bad, and our bodies are sort of a prison for our, our immaterial soul. But that's not actually our story. Our story is that our bodies were created good. Good. In the garden, all the way back, that God created us in his image. Our bodies are part of that. And we know that the way that the story ends is not that we leave our bodies behind, but our bodies are resurrected. Our bodies are made new. Even looking at Jesus, Jesus took on flesh. that He actually became human and his flesh was raised. His flesh ascended into heaven. His flesh is enthroned at the right hand of God but we also recognize that our bodies are not what they were meant to be and they're not what they're going to be either, that there is still, yes, a problem with our bodies. Our bodies are mortal. They're vulnerable. They're weak. They're frail. In my case, it's clumsy. I don't know what it is, but I cannot turn a corner down any hallway without hitting the corner. It doesn't matter how much space there is. It can be a rather spacious hallway with plenty of room for me to make a turn. It doesn't matter if it's a left turn or a right turn. Some part of my body will find the corner. My flesh is clearly against me in those kinds of things. But we know as Christians, our bodies are not bad. They're not evil. Our bodies can be used for evil, In the same way that our bodies can also be used for good. But our bodies themselves are not opposed to the spirit. So that's led other people to say, well, no, he's not talking about physical bodies here. What he's talking about is our passions or maybe our feelings, our emotions. This is really sort of our inheritance from the enlightenment that says everything that is not logical and reasonable is somehow bad or maybe even evil at times. But our passions, our emotions, our desires, they're actually God-given. We are not machines, we are humans, and humans have feelings and desires and needs and wants. And yes, it's true that those desires can become distorted, and it's certainly true that our emotions can be really difficult, but we're not called to ignore them. We're called to actually take those things and direct them to God, and to ask God to sort of redirect what's going on inside of us, and to see how it is that he might be speaking to us through those things, and how our desires might be oriented toward what is good and right and true and beautiful. So, our desires or passions are not necessarily opposed to the Spirit either. So, in this passage that we see really clearly is that Paul says that the flesh is opposed to service, that the flesh is opposed to serving one another humbly in love. This has led a lot of translations of some scholars to say, to translate flesh here, as selfish desires that it's a particular kind of way of desiring. It's the ways in which there's the part of us that is susceptible to sin gets entangled up in sin, that we get twisted up and turned inward so that our bodies and our passions and our emotions become entirely directed towards self-gratification. That's what he's talking about here, is that part of us that can get twisted up so that the only thing that really matters to us is gratifying ourselves, serving ourselves. And what Paul is saying is that the Spirit actually frees us from that, that the Spirit frees us from the flesh. The Spirit frees us from our own selfishness, our inward bent, our inability to be thinking about anything other than ourselves and just taking care of, number one, it frees us from the power of sin and our participation with it. Now, this is really different for just a second. here, This is really different than self-care. There's sometimes that we think, well, what we need to do is just not have any wants or needs or desires or feelings. That's not true. To deny ourselves those things would also be to deny ourselves our humanity. We have limits. We have needs. It is not giving into your flesh to get a good night's sleep. That's that's not what's being talked about here. It's that sense like that everything in my world revolves around me and every relationship I have in my life is about getting my needs met. That there's nothing about anything else that is about other people. What Glenn said last week in his sermon is we see that this kind of idea of freedom actually runs really contrary to our culture. That our culture doesn't seem to be talking about freedom from our flesh but maybe, maybe freedom for our flesh. Maybe freedom for our selfishness. We typically talk about freedom from others for the sake of ourselves. And there are certainly times and places where that is necessarily true. That like we talked about in situations where there's abuse and there's oppression and those things, there does need to be a freedom from the ways in which others are treating us in those environments. But what Paul's talking about here is a freedom from ourselves for the sake of others. It runs contrary to the ways that we normally think about it. We typically think about freedom as freedom from all restraints and all resistance and all obligations and all expectations and all needs and wants and demands of other people, uh, whether those are political or moral or anything else. We just need to be free from all of that so that we can pursue our own self-interest, that we can do whatever we want, whatever we like, whatever we feel like, whatever seems good to us. But Paul says that way of living, of just that self-gratification, that self-centeredness, that selfishness that gets buried inside of us, this is where that leads. Since says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, They lead to sexual immorality, to impurity, to debauchery, to idolatry and witchcraft, to hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word here is actually works of the flesh. This is how the flesh how selfishness gets worked out inside of us. It manifests itself in particular behaviors and actions. It manifests itself in sin. And if you look through that list, you see that none of those things are actually personal or private or harmless. Sin is always social. It's always relational. It always involves and impacts not just ourselves, but other people It always impacts community in some way. And what's really interesting here in his list is that he begins with sexual sin and pagan worship. We're like, yeah, 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 that's stuff for the flesh. Yeah, we get that. And then he ends with drunkenness and wild parties. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. We we, we get that. Those are the things that we normally associate with the flesh for those of us who are familiar with Christian culture and the ways that we talk about this. Like, oh, yeah, 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 sex, drugs, rock and roll. That's the flesh. Like, we get all of that. That's what he's talking about here. But it's interesting that the center of what he's talking about and the bulk of the behaviors that he's talking about are things that we don't normally associate with the flesh. Hatred, discord, jealousy, rage... Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy? Why does he pull all of those out? Why not just skip from like, you know, the sexual stuff to the idolatry stuff to the drunkenness stuff and go on from there? Why does he spend the bulk of his time talking about these kinds of things? Well, if we've been paying attention to Galatians, that's the problem in Galatians, (laughs) If this was Corinth, he may have said a whole lot of other things if he was talking to that particular church. But in the church in Galatia, this is what's going on, is that they are being divided up, that there are these sharp divisions that are happening between Jewish and Gentile Christians, that the problem in Galatia is factions. It's hatred. It's discord. It's dividing one another up. It's threatening the unity of the church. And Paul says, you have to stop this. And tells them, said, don't do that. Instead, love one another. Because if you don't, remember what he said earlier, Is if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. This is what the church is doing. They're biting at each other. They're devouring one another. And what will happen is that their community, their witness, their life together will be destroyed. I think this imagery actually helps us to kind of think about the impact of the flesh. That essentially what the flesh does is the flesh feeds on others. In order to fulfill our own selfishness, it will feed on other people in order to see those things met the flesh will inevitably cannibalize community. It will devour our relationships. It will separate us into smaller and smaller and smaller groups. And we have seen this play out all around us in every sphere of society for the last two years in great ways. And it's really easy, though, kind of at this point when we come to these kind of scriptures, at least my temptation is, See, they're doing that and they're doing that and they're doing that. And we have to be really careful not to allow the scriptures to become a tool for accusation, but to allow the scriptures to be something that the spirit speaks to us in reflection and to ask ourselves the hard questions. But where have we participated in those kind of behaviors? How has my living out of the flesh, my sort of, inward bent to be concerned solely with myself. How has that fed on my friends? How has that impacted my spouse? How has that touched my kids? How has it changed the dynamics with roommates, with family members, with coworkers, with bosses, with neighbors? Have I engaged in any of these kind of activities with other Christians? with Christians that I disagree with or Christians I'm disappointed by. Paul says we should guard against these kinds of actions and attitudes because what they will do is they will divide up the church. And he says, that he, and then he goes on, he invites us into a different way of being, a different way of living, a different way of relating to one another amongst the people of God. And he says, Galatians 5.22, one of the most favorite passages in the book. But the fruits of the Spirit, on the other hand, it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience or forbearance, it's kindness, it's goodness or generosity, it's faithfulness, it's gentleness, and it's self-control. And against such things, there is no law. A couple of really interesting here that happened with Paul. First, he switches from plural to singular. He switches from plural works or acts of the flesh to singular fruit of the Spirit. I think what Paul's trying to get us to realize here is that the flesh works itself in all kinds of ways, but the spirit produces a singular, inseparable collection of behaviors in the people of God. We can be enraged without being drunk. You can be jealous without practicing witchcraft, but you can't be loving without also being kind and gentle. You can't be patient without being faithful and self-controlled, that these things actually all go together. The other thing he does is he switches metaphors. He switches metaphors from talking about works to talking about fruit. I think it's because he's wanting us again to pick up on that idea where the flesh feeds on others, but the spirit of God does is the spirit actually feeds others. That whereas the flesh cannibalizes community, the spirit nourishes it. The spirit in us actually enriches our relationships. It enriches our family and our friends and our neighbors. It enriches our city. It enriches our state, our nation, and the world. When we think about that sort of image, what comes to mind then is the recognition that the fruit of the Spirit is actually not for us. That the fruit of the Spirit is actually not something that's produced in us for us. In the same way that the gifts of the Spirit are not given to us for us. Those things benefit us certainly, but only in a secondary sense. Others are always meant to be the primary beneficiaries of the Spirit's work in us. That the Spirit's work in us and the Spirit's work through us is primarily for the benefit of the people that he has set us in relationship with. And correspondingly, the primary beneficiary of the work of the people, uh, the work of the Spirit in their lives is us. We benefit from the fruit of the Spirit in others, and they benefit from the fruit of the Spirit in us. This is, I think, one of the reasons why in-person church gatherings matter so much. That when we have this kind of perspective about the work of the Spirit, we can start to understand why it's so important that we gather together in spaces like this and in homes and elsewhere. Because our presence in those kind of gatherings is not primarily for our own benefit. Our presence is primarily for the benefit of others. Oftentimes, when we walk into gatherings, into church gatherings, our primary kind of question in our mind, or maybe our primary prayer, is a good question, so I'm not critiquing it in this sense. But primarily, we're thinking, okay, Lord, what do you want to speak to me today? Lord, what am I going to get out of this today? Lord, what is it that you have for me today? All of those are great questions. We should be asking those questions and praying those prayers. But I wonder if we stop too soon. I wonder if we should also be asking, or maybe even primarily asking, Lord, how do you want to work through me for the sake of someone else today? Lord, why are you sending me into this gathering today? Lord, who are you sending me to today? How is it that someone else might experience the love of God through me today in this gathering? Lord, would you show me someone that needs uh, that's having a hard time imagining that God loves them? Would you awaken my eyes to see them? Would you help me to go and approach them and to share the love of God with them? Lord, would you lead me to somebody today That is, is having a hard time experiencing joy in life. And with the joy of the Lord, which is my strength, actually be something that they can taste and see. And it may bring joy to them today. What if we walked into services and small groups and meal groups and those things, that kind of holy curiosity. God, what is it that you want to do in and through me today? The question, of course, is how does this happen in us? How does the Spirit actually free us from the flesh? How is this actualized or realized in our lives? And there's, for many of us, we think, well, this is just something that's going to spontaneously happen by the Spirit. What I'm just waiting for is I'm going to wake up one day and suddenly I'm gentle. (laughs) Like I, I, I prayed enough prayers asking and then suddenly I was just gentle today. I was not gentle every day before that, but suddenly I am. That, oh, I just woke up and suddenly I'm the most patient person on the planet. It spontaneously sort of happened. And I think part of that is that we actually believe that if something's not spontaneous or natural or organic, um, if it takes any sort of work or participation on our part, then it's not authentic, that it's not real. But if that's the definition of authentic, is the things that happen sort of spontaneously or naturally then the works of the flesh actually fit better than the fruit of the spirits, (laughs) right? I'm an Enneagram one. I don't have to work to be angry, (laughs) right? I'm like Bruce Banner. My secret is I'm always angry, (laughs) right? I need the spirit of God at work in me to teach me patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Christ-like character and then subsequently Christian community don't just happen, They don't just sort of like spontaneously sort of erupt. They take time. They take effort. They take intentionality. They're only organic in the same way that organic gardening is organic. If you've ever tried to do an organic garden, an organic garden is not something that you just like claim a a plot of land in your backyard. That's my garden. And then wait to see what happens. I'm just waiting spontaneously for tomatoes to show up. What happens if you have that kind of garden? You have nothing to eat. You have just weeds and wild things growing there. An organic garden must be carefully uh, and actively tended and cared for. It's the same thing for our life in the spirit. It's something that we actively participate and attend with. Paul captures this in the next verse. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. I think what Paul's trying to draw our attention to is that the flesh is something that must actually be crucified and the fruit must be cultivated that there's work on both sides, that the flesh must be crucified and the fruit must be cultivated. According to Paul, this is something that happens by and with the Spirit. It's not something that happens by ourselves or by our effort alone. It's the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit in us. But again, like a garden, it doesn't happen passively We are active participants in the Spirit's work in us. This is why he says in 5.16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or Galatians 5.25, since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. He's using all this language of walk and live and keep in step. I think what Paul's trying to say is that our task is to align our lives with the life of the Spirit and to follow his lead. It's similar to Israel following the cloud by day and the fire by night. That as they followed the spirit in front of them, they knew that they wouldn't end up back in Egypt. How do we get to the promised land? Oh, we follow the fire and the cloud. We go that way. Maybe it's for us. You start driving west and you know you'll never end up in Kansas. Sorry to compare Kansas to Egypt there for you Kansans in the room, including my in-laws who might be watching. I think our task is to follow the, the the path laid out by the Spirit, who will lead us out of selfishness and into the abundant life of the Spirit. Another way to think about this is, the, is thinking about getting a tan. Hang with me here. I know that sounds strange, especially for a Norwegian who doesn't know what a tan is. I just burn and peel uh, and hope I don't blister. That's the, the route it goes for me. But for those of you who can tan. <laughs> You can't get a tan inside. You can't get a tan in the shade. You get a tan by putting yourself in the path of the sun and then let the sun do its work on your skin. It's the same way with the spirit. We look for ways to put ourselves in the spirit's path and let the spirit do its work in us. I think this is actually the role of Christian practices or Christian disciplines. These things are not the things that change us, These are the things that put us in the path of the Spirit who changes us. They're the ways that we get in the way of the Spirit. They're the ways that we follow his tracks out of Egypt and into the promised land. We don't become faithful by just suddenly waking up one day and like, I'm faithful today. Instead, we do little practices like keeping our promises and keeping our word. And we keep our promises over a long period of time and what happens is that people begin to experience the faithfulness of God in our lives. We don't learn self-control just by saying like, I've got it figured out, I'm gonna try harder and I'm just going to have self-control. No, we practice things like fasting. We say no to little things to learn how to say no to the big things and find that the Spirit actually does something in those moments. In the same way, we learn joy the other way, by practicing feasting. <laughs> by having moments where we actually hold both of these together. Like there's seasons that we feast and there's seasons that we fast. And we learn self-control and we learn joy. We say yes to the right things over and over again over a long period of time and find that joy starts erupting inside of us. We learn patience by waiting in silence. We learn patience in prayer, waiting for God to answer. We learn generosity not by saying, okay, I'm going to make a big gift and then suddenly I'm generous. We learn generosity by practicing small ways of giving over and over a long period of time. This is what tithes and offerings and those things are. And then suddenly we find ourselves saying yes to things and suddenly not holding things as closed-fisted as we did before. Somehow the Spirit opens up our hands and we become generous people. We learn to love by practicing serving, by actually just putting ourselves in people's paths and serving them. You're like, well, I don't really like people. If, if that's the case and you're like, I don't like people. I don't really like them at all. I think the best team for you to join would be the welcome team. Yeah. Honestly. Because yeah. then what happens is you stand at the door every single week and you greet people like, oh, I don't like you. <laughs> but asking the spirit of God to do something in that moment. Right. And then, then you know, over the course of time, you see the same people you're like, actually, they're not so bad. I mean, I might like, I don't love them, uh, but I tolerate them. And then what happens over the course of time, you're like, wait a minute. I didn't see Cor today. I didn't see Brenda today. I didn't see Becca today. I didn't see Justin today. I didn't see Lindsay today. Where did that come from? (laughs) I hope they're okay. Lord be with them. Wait a minute. Now I'm praying for people. What has happened? It's because something has changed in a slow way over a long period of time. This is why we serve the church is because in serving one another we actually learn to love one another That's why we encourage all of those kind of things and of course one of those practices is the, is the eucharist the reason that we come to the table every single week is not just because like this is what you're supposed to do we come to the table every single week that we might encounter the spirit of the living god who always leads us to jesus Then we might behold the life and death and resurrection and sacrifice of Jesus. Then we might behold the love of God and that the love of God might do something inside of us in such a way that as we walk out, we find, wait a minute, if God loves me, then God also loves that person. And maybe God might want to love that person through me in the same way that I've experienced the love of God in these moments. So we come to these things, again, just to put ourselves in the path of the Spirit and then ask and hope and pray that the Spirit of God would cause love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control to pop up out of us. Why? So that he might feed his church. So he might feed others in Jesus' name. Evan, would you lead us to the table this morning?